This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. and jump on Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello. Great to have your company on Countrywide today. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. And in the next half hour... It's a 330,000 tonne trial pumping industrial waste into the GIB. Uh, and, and the GIB is not a plaything. Farmers are hardening their resolve against a proposal to inject liquefied carbon dioxide into Australia's biggest underground freshwater reservoir. And a bit later, Australia's richest man has picked up another Aussie fashion staple. He's already got the RMs. Can you guess what Twiggy Forest has now? I'll give you a bit of a hint. They sort of go together. And also, would you pay $14 for an Australian mango? Some people are somewhere in the world. You'll find out where in a tick. But first, a rare bit of really good news on the weather front. Rain is falling, all on dry farms, gardens and into empty water tanks, much to the relief of farmers and firefighters after a very dry couple of months for parts of the country. Some of the heaviest rain so far has been reported through southern parts of Queensland and northern New South Wales. Joining me to tell us all about it is ABC's national weather reporter, Tyne Logan. Tyne, how are you going? Hello, how are you doing? Good. So Tyne, some very relieved farmers in the eastern states particularly. How much rain has fallen? Look, lots is kind of the long short of it. And there has been a certain degree of, um, you know, postcode to postcode variance, but Really, when you have a look at the scheme of things, it's quite a widespread part of Queensland, New South Wales that have had at least 100 millimetres wow. for the fortnight. Yeah, and some places significantly more than that. Some places got 150 millimetres in the space of a day, which, you know, there's an argument to be said that that might be too heavy, but they're going to come away with some really huge totals by the time the system is up. And then I guess if you look through Victoria and South Australia, you've got around 50 millimetres for the fortnight there. So it's been a really generous system. And I think probably what's most interesting to me as well as um, what you mentioned about where it's fallen, I, ahead of this story, uh, this story about the rain, was actually writing a story about drought and the driest parts of the country. And if you look at where the heaviest falls have been over the last fortnight or over the last week, and then you look at where the strongest rainfall deficiencies are, it is almost identical, which Mm. is just awesome because those regions were in so desperate need of it and it's really nice to have a good news story. So it's getting to where it needs to be. Where exactly is that? It's mostly through the southern half of Queensland that it's come down. So uh, southwest, southeast and the central coast, as well as the northern parts of New South Wales. That's where the heaviest falls have been and that's where the driest falls have been over the last uh, three months. And the cattle market and lamb prices rose off the back of the news this week. Did you speak to any farmers in some of the regions about it? Yeah, I did. I actually spoke to a guy uh, who has a cattle farm near Emerald. He was chuffed. He got between 20 millimetres and 90 millimetres over his property. He actually went and bought 
more cattle the next day, he told me, which he did concede he probably would have done anyway, but he said before the rain, that might have been a dumb decision. After that rain came down, he felt really confident in that decision, and particularly when summer uh, for his part of the world in Queensland is actually the wettest month of the year. So it, I guess it's just a story of, of confidence, right? He's feeling so much more confident now mm. that he's had that good downpour. Definitely an early Christmas present. And yeah. uh, up north in the tropics, it's meant to be wet season up there. How's it faring? Yeah, I mean, they had a really dry start to the wet season. I guess like a delay, which is what you expect in El Nino years, but it's been popping off there too. I'm a big fan of the... Um, the Broome Weather Group. They have some cracker photos of thunderstorms over the Kimberley at the moment. There's been some big fat cells over the Northern Territory too. As for Queensland, there has been some isolated big falls through the northern part of Queensland. Probably a bit more isolated than you'd say has been the case in the Northern Territory. And it's not probably not quite enough yet, particularly the Cape York Peninsula, they haven't actually had anything from this system and so they're still a bit short. Mm. And the other side of the country where you are in WA last week, it it was really the opposite to the east coast, hot and dry and we saw those really dangerous fires in Wanneroo. How significant was the heat wave that Perth experienced? It's been so hot here. This is actually the first time a severe heat wave warning has been issued in November you know, we're talking about it's. We might not have got that four days in a row over 35 record, but we're talking about six days in the week that have been or are forecast to be 35 or above in Perth. Similar up and down the west coast. You know, some temperatures nearing 45 degrees in some places, with no reprieve overnight either, which is when it can start getting really dangerous for the body. And you know, Perth is a hot dry place but even for Perth standards at this time of year after a relatively mild November uh, there's no doubt that this is a really significant event. And what's causing that dry weather? Is there any uh, rain or relief on the horizon? Mm, Relief perhaps it's (laughs) not going to be quite so hot. Rain there's none of that to come yet. It's it's this really classic setup of a heatwave in Western Australia where you've got this trough running down the west coast and you've got a big high pressure system and that just fans in these really hot dry winds from the desert towards the west coast and it also stops the sea breeze which is I guess you'd call it the natural air conditioner. What's different in this case is that it's just been sitting there all week which is why the eastern states have been getting thunderstorms all week but for western Australia it just means that heat has been building and building. I guess the good news is from about Tuesday you know it drops back into the high 20s low 30s so that's certainly better than nearly 40 degrees. Mm. I've got my fingers crossed for you. Uh, the ABC's national weather reporter, Tyne Logan, thanks for joining me. Thank you. A growing chorus of industry and community voices are concerned about a proposed carbon capture and storage project that would see liquefied carbon dioxide, CO2, injected into a water-producing aquifer within the Great Artesian Basin. Ellie Bradfield has this report. So the Great Artesian Basin is one of the largest underground freshwater resources in the world. It really is a wonder uh, of the world. Joe Shepherd is CEO of the Queensland Farmers Federation. It generates approximately $13 billion in value to the national economy every year. It's a vital resource for over 180,000 people, over 7,600 businesses and 120 towns. 
So it's a natural resource that uh, is not only heavily relied upon by agriculture, but it's also the lifeblood of multiple industries and regional communities. The biodiversity also that is supported by the GAB is incredible. And I think the environmental value of this natural asset is immeasurable. It is the envy of the rest of the world. Glencore is one of the world's biggest coal miners. Its subsidiary, Carbon Transport and Storage Corporation, CTSCO, is planning a trial capturing CO2 from the Milmerran power station and injecting it deep underground. Joe Shepherd says it's attempting to fix one environmental issue, but creating another. In this case, on one hand, we're doing everything we can to safeguard the environment, yet on the other side, we're putting it at risk. You know, CCS cannot just be a vehicle for big business to meet their emission offset targets. CCS projects cannot be rushed into. And if we do, we are likely to cause perverse outcomes, perhaps unintentionally, but perverse outcomes all the same, where we will end up risking the very environment that we're trying to protect. The trial involves turning the carbon dioxide into a liquid form and then trucking it to a storage well near the farming town of Mooney. Over the three-year trial, CTSCO plans to inject up to 110,000 tonnes of the waste CO2 each year into the precipice sandstone. It's a groundwater formation in the Great Artesian Basin, which is about 2,300 metres underground. Ken Cameron is a major Queensland pig producer. His Cameron Pastoral Company holds a licence to extract water less than 10 kilometres from the same aquifer CTSCO is proposing to store waste CO2. We've set ourselves up, been building a, a, a pork producing business here for the last 40 years, um, working towards uh, future growth and we've got ourselves positioned where we can produce more than double the number of pigs we currently do from the subject properties and yes this will potentially have a huge impact on that because that growth is dependent on using water from the precipice aquifer. And he's worried. This is a trial. It's a 330,000 tonne trial pumping industrial waste into the GAB. Well a trials typically conducted when you're not sure what the outcome will be uh, and, and the GAB is not a plaything. It's not something you do trials on to see you know, what at what impact it's going to have. I just don't understand how anyone can contemplate letting this continue. And you said obviously this will have an impact on your mixed farming operation, but what about the impact on agriculture more broadly? If this does go ahead, what could this look like? Nobody actually knows. The waste they're pumping in, uh, which happens to be CO2 in this instance, acidifies the, the water. That can lead to leaching of heavy metals out of the, the rock. And as everybody knows, high pressure flows to low pressure. So there, if there are extraction points, and there are and will be more of them, the high pressure created by injecting under very, very high pressures, injecting the waste into the aquifer, that will migrate towards those water bores. And when it arrives there, well, it'll be devastating. It, it really will. Hydrogeologist Ned Hamer shares those concerns. So the injection of that acidic water will, in accordance with the EIS itself, will dissolve the rock where the injected CO2 enters the aquifer, dissolve the rock and the dissolved minerals and metals um, in that rock will migrate with groundwater, with the groundwater flow 
yeah, so into the water resource and towards uh, users of the aquifer, so those that have got pools pumping in the aquifer. And those minerals include or metals include arsenic and lead and, and other heavy metals that make the water unsuitable for any use, particularly those uses that are occurring at the moment, such as for livestock. And there's a number of towns that rely on the precipice sandstone aquifer for town water supply, so it's not just livestock drinking. Precipice sandstone is used by many towns. The town of Dolby is, um, well, the council, Western Downs Regional Council, are currently actively drilling into the precipice sandstone for uh, a town water supply. CTS co-insists the impacts on the precipice aquifer will be localised and only minor. A spokesperson said our EIS details a range of comprehensive monitoring and verification management measures to ensure the injected food-grade carbon dioxide does not impact any existing or potential GAB water users. With no predicted impacts on existing or future groundwater users, CTSCO consider the proposed injection testing project to be viable. Ned Hamer has raised issues with the company's modelling and the assumptions that are built into it. All details of the EIS and the project should be scrutinised because it's not being clearly communicated. Unfortunately, the public doesn't have another opportunity to review the revised EIS. The company says groundwater quality and geochemistry assessment required a range of geological and water assessments. The spokesperson said CTSCO have conducted the sampling and assessments appropriate and relevant for CO2 injection. When Glencore first submitted its draft environmental impact statement, it said the water was saline and unsuitable for agriculture. But now its language seems to have changed as it responds to public submissions. Joe Shepherd explains. The original EIS uh, described the water as being unusable. The revised EIS describes the water as being usable in some circumstances. Our advice from industry and from experts that we have engaged has always believed the water to be usable, certainly usable for uh, stock purposes and, if treated, uh, usable for human consumption as well. A CTS co-spokesperson said after submissions during the EIS public consultation process, it engaged a livestock health expert to assess the potential usability of this high-fluoride water for livestock. The spokesperson said this assessment identified certain conditions where this groundwater could be consumed by some livestock. Ned Hamer says he hasn't been able to find any other carbon capture and storage projects globally that involve injection of liquefied CO2 into a water resource aquifer. Ken Cameron says the project must be scrapped. This has never been done before. It's all the danger and there's no guarantees what what the results will be. So, you know, my parallel is to the Link Energy debacle near Kogan and the taxpayer and the environment are still paying the price. Gondawindi pig farmer Ken Cameron ending that report from Ellie Bradfield. There is more of that story on our website. You're listening to Countrywide. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. You're listening to Countrywide across Australia and around the world. ABC Radio. The EU has extended its authorisation of the controversial weed killer glyphosate by a decade. Authorisation in member countries was set to expire on December 15th after a one year extension was given last year. 
farmers around the world were really worried that the European Commission wouldn't renew its approval given strong pressure from anti-glyphosate campaigners and claims it is a health hazard. CropLife Chief Executive Matthew Cossey says without access to the herbicide, which kills a broad spectrum of weeds, food production would have been affected. Glyphosate's a crucial tool for farmers here in Australia, but uh, equally in Europe and around the world. So it's good to see that uh, the European Commission's uh, made the decision, which is based on all the independent expert scientific advice. The one great advantage we have in Australia is we have an independent science-based regulatory system. doesn't involve politics, just made on data and uh, expert assessment. The European system gets a little more convoluted than that, and while all their independent agencies endorse the uh, uh, approval of glyphosate uh, and the European Commission's own expert committees have, it then also nominally needs to be approved at a political level and they've struggled even to get that meeting to have quorum. So the European Commission's decision is a good common sense one and one that uh, confirms uh, the uh, importance of glyphosate. And this, I believe, follows the assessment by the European Food and Safety Authority as well. That's right, their Food and Safety Authority, their uh, chemical expert committees, um, along with all the independent scientific regulators within each of the EU countries have all uh, done the assessments. Really, it's uh, just a a matter of uh, good common sense uh, decisions. One, obviously, very important for European farmers, but also uh, important for Australian farmers so that we don't see European sort of uh, agricultural politics get in the way of any of our export markets. On that note, what implications would an EU ban on glyphosate, for example, have on the Australian grain growers? Well, I don't think we've seen European politics has got so ridiculous that they ban it. But it would uh, cause some uh, difficulties. That would be going to uh, products that are banned in Europe um, means that there's challenges with exporting to that market for Australian farmers who do use it. This is one of the really important issues, particularly around trade and particularly while the EU over recent times and recently in an attempt to get a free trade agreement have sought to enforce farming practices on farmers in Australia and around the world that they wish to impose there. And that's something that we need to be very cautious of because as I said in Australia, the decisions made here are made by independent expert regulators based on evidence. And as we've just seen earlier this year with the uh, ABARES report, Australian farmers are some of the best practice and uh, most uh, environmentally sustainable farmers in the world. So we need to protect good agronomic policy here and we can't let trade issues warp that. So I think that's why uh, overall, uh, both for Australia and for Europe and globally, it's good to see some common sense finally come through in the European Commission. CropLife Chief Executive Matthew Cosy speaking there with Jane McNaughton. I'm Kit Mocken. You're listening to Countrywide. Mangoes from the Northern Territory have been exported to LA and are selling for about $9 US each. That's nearly 14 Aussie dollars a mango. Scott Ledger is an Australian veteran of the mango industry as well as a supply chain advisor. He's in Los Angeles at the moment watching the R2E2 mangoes arrive and says despite the long journey, they're looking and tasting great. They are, they are looking fabulous and they're tasting delicious. I don't think we could do any better, Matt. It's, um, it's um, a real, real pleasure to see such great quality on the shelf, uh, you know, given um, they were basically picked two weeks ago. Uh, so 
the retailers are very enthusiastic about it. So the um, Gelson's markets we've been supplying for five or six seasons. So the uh, produce managers um, know know our mangoes and they just love them. Uh, they just uh, love the 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 colour, the size, and and the flavour. And these, of course, are R2E2 mangoes. Your company, Mambalu, is famous for its Kensington prides. Why is it the R2E2 that you that you target this market with? So we we, we have uh, in the past we have supplied Kensington pride into the US market, and they absolutely love the flavour of, of of KP. KP is a softer mango when it's ripe. So, you know, this is a really challenging um, supply chain. So the R2E2 is a better match in terms of the requirements of what we've got to achieve with the handling. The other thing is that another reason why they love the R2s is because it's it's large and colourful, lovely blush colour, and nothing like any other mango that's currently available. So... The other mangoes that are available are coming from Ecuador and Peru. Mm. They, they, are, they are medium-sized mangoes, about the same as KPs. So, so these, these are twos of, uh, of ours are really uh, quite distinctive and different to what else is available. And uh, how much does an American have to fork out to buy an Aussie mango at the moment? So in in Gelson's, um, they're they're retailing for eight ninety nine uh, a mango, and in Sam's Club, slightly smaller size, they're, they're retailing uh, for a three pack for twenty dollars. Nineteen eighty eight, I think it is. Yeah, I've got here. I've got so, here in my calculator eight dollars ninety nine equates to thirteen dollars yeah. eighty one. A mango each in Aussie dollars. Whew. That's right. Uh, what we all the things we need to do to actually deliver to the shelf. You know, it it, it is it, it does cost a lot of money to to actually put it on the shelf. And people buy, but people buy them at that price, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, so Gelson's, you know, Gelson's, um, is, you know, it's it's like a um, it's a, like a Harris Farms. And they've got 28 around um, LA, so you know their customers are high-end customers for mid to high-end, and so I've been asking the produce managers, you know, does the 899 is that a barrier? Does that stop people buying? Um, and their their standard comment is a few, but uh, but it's, they in Gelson's most of them. Um, don't balk at the price. It's, you know, they just, because they know the variety and they know it's going to be a great eating experience and they know they get plenty of mango with an R2, um, the, the price, it's not a barrier to their regular customers. Mango supply chain advisor Scott Ledger making me very hungry there as he speaks to Matt Bran. From the top end to Tassie. Countrywide on ABC Radio.
Iconic Australian hat maker Akubra has announced that the business has been sold to Tatarang, which is owned by mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest. Akubra has been run by the Kerr family for the last 147 years, as Tina Quinn reports. It's an Australian fashion staple, famously donned by celebrities and prime ministers, and the new owners of Akubra hats, which have been handmade in Australia for almost 150 years, intend to keep it that way. Australia is the winner out of this. Australia keeps a legacy at home with an organisation who's so proud to be Australian, who's so proud of our nation, our history, everything which our diggers have fought for, the fact these hats are worn all over the world by our diggers, by Australians everywhere. If you want to be seen to be proudly Australian, then in an Akrobra is the way to do it. Mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest over the weekend announcing their private investment firm Tatarang had acquired a Kubra from the Kia family after 147 years of ownership. The Akubra business started in Hobart in 1876 and the hats have been manufactured in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast since 1972. Over the last 50 years since its Kempsey workshop first opened, they've become a major employer for the region with more than 120 staff. Akubra's outgoing chair Stephen Keir said the decision to sell was a difficult one cited the COVID-19 pandemic as one of the main drivers. Um, the first six months of the pandemic were really, really tough. Uh, then it took off and that's where we've been stuck. We've had it to a point and we can't get it further. And um, that's where we made the decision to look at our, where we can go, how we do it. And the world's out there. Most of our sales are in Australia. So Tatarang will take that further and do that. My sisters and I have talked for a long time about um, where we can get this business to and we've, we've done a pretty good job to get it where it is now and our forefathers have done a good job to where it is. But it needs more and um, we were just worried that we weren't going to be able to give it what it needs and um, Tattering and the forests have proven um, what they've done with Aaron Williams. Um, we've dealt with Aaron Williams for, for a long time and um, it's just... The brand, we, we took ourselves out of the picture and thought, what does the brand need and what does the company need? And um, this is a decision we came to. And um, Mr. Forrest has talked to me over the years. Andrew Digger. Andrew's <laughs> talked to me over the years. And um, he, his passion for manufacturing here is what a place like this needs. Terence Hunt, a former Akubra employee of 53 years, told the ABC's Samantha Aisha that he has many fond memories from his time at the company. I started in 1961, I retired as the company secretary in 1995 and retired as a director in 2014. So what would you say would be the most rewarding time since your time at Akubra? There have been a couple of really good times. 1998 with the uh, uh, centenary and the uh, Commonwealth Games in Britain, a dramatic increase in demand and we rose to the challenge dropped off then since, but since then it's picked up and with the last one I was involved we were selling into 23 countries. Bit, 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 bit large for a small Australian company. So how do you feel with the new ownership? Well, I was saying to somebody else, Charles Darwin never said the survival of the fittest, he said it was the survival of those who adapt fastest and this generation has adapted to the situation they're in now. There's certainly 
Mr. Forrest coming in with his assets that he got available to back the company to do more and bigger things, have to applaud that. It's good thinking, it's advancing in Cuba, it's advancing in Australia. And what legacy do you hope that the company carries on? Um, looking after the employees, looking after their customers, looking after their suppliers. And it's always been a family company, and that's been a very strong point. Andrew and Nicola Forrest have vowed to expand Akubra's operations, pointing to their 2020 purchase of the Australian boot label RM Williams, which has seen an increase to that brand's workforce of more than 500 people. The Forrests announced they had separated this year, but continue to invest together through Tatarang. Tina Quinn with that report. And that's all we have time for today on Countrywide. It's been great having your company today. Hope you had a good time. I'm your host, Kit Mocken. Bye for now. <laughs>